If you got your Bibles, two passages today, you're going to look up Habakkuk chapter 3, all right? Habakkuk chapter 3, it's in the Old Testament, a very little used book, but a powerful, powerful book. Habakkuk chapter 3, and then Luke chapter 1, uh, we're going to finish up Luke chapter 1 uh, today, starting in verse 76, all right? Uh, as you get started, uh, the question today that we get started with is, have you ever had a problem that required outside help before? You ever had a problem that required outside help before? Some of you had that experience with your car. Uh, you don't have a whole lot of know-how. Plus, they've gotten real complicated with cars and vehicles now and trying to figure out a way to work on that. You need outside help. In this city, I've got to say, the best example that I think all of us have had at one point or another is moving furniture, all right? You had one of those problems where if you're like me, I'm the one who I like to do everything myself, uh, or I keep it in-house in the family. You know, I don't like to ask other people for a lot of stuff, and so I try to just take care of it myself. And um, I'm telling you, there are sometimes you got to move a buffet, you know what I mean? Or you got to move, uh, you gotta move a, a dresser, or you got to move something that is super heavy. And there is no way, I mean, you could be Superman or Wonder Woman and you still would not have any opportunity to move this thing. You can't do it by yourself. I've got a very DC story uh, that, uh, that happened. Uh, one of my favorite DC stories living here, we had the, uh, an individual in our church who was the director of a major uh, organization, administration organization here. And uh, um, I remember big position, thousands of people under their, uh, their supervision. And uh, this individual came in, was overseeing projects all over the world. And uh, the way you come into DC, a lot of excitement. You come into D.C. with all this help and all these people trying to, uh, trying to cheer you on. You know how most people leave D.C. when you're not from here? Like a ship in the night. I mean, you guys just slip away. And I mean, just, I mean you, don't have a, you don't have two friends to rub together. You know, two sticks to rub together. It's just, and so it's just very, very sad uh, when you leave sometimes in the city. Come in with big pomp. You leave just, just quiet and alone. And so anyway, this individual oversaw tens of thousands of people in this organization. And then at the end, I get a call on a Sunday afternoon. And I'm like, what? oh, this is crazy. Department head here. I answered the phone and said, hey, do you need something? He goes, hey, uh, I need some help. I said, yeah, anything, whatever you say. I mean, is it, is it overseas? Is it here? And he goes, I need some help moving my couch. And I was like, seriously? He goes, I've deployed my entire team. They're all in different spots. And he said, is there any way you could come and help me move my couch? And so it was just crazy. That's DC, isn't it, right? Sometimes you come across these things, doesn't matter how many people you oversee, what position you're in. Sometimes you just need somebody to hold the other end of that couch so that you can take it out the door. And so I've never forgotten that. Sometimes in life, emotionally, and spiritually, you got these moments where you sit there and you go, Lord, there's a problem taking place here that's so big. I am willing to be obedient and to help with this, but I can't do it on my own. Part of understanding how the Lord deploys us to work through the ills of society as the hands and feet of Jesus Christ is understanding we were not meant to do it by ourselves. The big heavy lifting, he is the one who wants us to realize we can't do this alone, but we are still obedient to do the work. If you look at Habakkuk chapter 3, and I'm going to read you some different points. Uh, it's one thing when it's your life. It's another thing where through the last couple of years, I guarantee you every person in this room, no matter political affiliation, has had a point where you looked at society as a Christian and went, man, Lord, I want to help in this area, but it's too big a couch for me to lift. It's too big a buffet for me to lift. Lord, surely you want to bring about change in this societal area, but how does it happen? How does it come together? Well, in Habakkuk chapter two, we actually get Habakkuk listing a bunch of societies 
societal issues during his day and time. And then he comes up with a prayer in chapter three, verse two, uh, that actually is very, very powerful. If you're the type of person who's been saying, Lord, the couch is too big for me to lift on my own. I want to bring about change. I want to be your hands and feet, but I can't do this by myself. If that's you, let me read you some verses here. He's about to lay out some pretty heavy stuff. I'll open up to Habakkuk chapter three, verse two. But leading up in chapter two, we kind of get the uh, uh, we kind of get the picture of what Habakkuk is praying about. He says, "Look, first societal problem, uh, starting there in verse six. Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes for himself wealthy uh, by extortion. He sees extortion in society and it causes him to feel angst. Lord, how do we fix this? Look at verse nine. Woe to him who builds up his realm by unjust gain and sets his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. Uh, verse twelve. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. Verse 15, woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it out in the wineskins until they're drunk so that he can gaze upon their naked bodies. What a bizarre description there of sexual assault that's taken place. And now verse 19, woe to him who says to wood, come to life or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver and no breath is in it. Stop there. Habakkuk chapter 2 is him looking at different portions of society from sexual assault to idolatry and going, Lord, I want to lift this sofa. I want things to change so the world isn't like this anymore. How can we bring about change? Look at the prayer in Habakkuk 3 verse 2. He says, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. And in our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. Stop right there for just a minute. Habakkuk comes to the point where he realizes he cannot lift this couch on his own. He cannot make this movement of God by himself, but he's heard that the Lord is the one who can do it. If you're taking notes, write this down. Revival on any level begins with our individual obedience and faith. Let me say that again. Revival on any level begins with our individual obedience and faith. If you are the person here at Christmas praying, peace on earth, goodwill toward men, Lord, bring about your kingdom. Bring about change that will shake the world and shape it in your image. If that's you praying that prayer today, we call that in the church world revival. God, bring about revival. How in the world does revival come about? It starts in the heart of me and it starts in the heart of you. It starts with the individual. We're about to read about John the Baptist. And in the story of John being prophesied over by his father, Zechariah, we get a description of what every believer should strive for uh, as one uh, who is trying to live for Christ. In fact, it says in the book of Matthew, Jesus says, of those born of women, there was none greater than John the Baptist. What he's saying there is, I came to die on the cross for your sin and be resurrected so that you could triumph over death and sin. But John, John does his best to pave the way for the gospel message so that it could be heard and clear uh, through, a, uh, through the message that's about to be preached. Are you ready for this? Our big million dollar question we're going to go through today. What does God expect of his leaders before a major movement of the Spirit? Good one to take notes on, Danny. This is a great biblical analogy. Uh, so many of you that I've had this same discussion with, how does God change the world around us when we feel like things are shaking out of control? The answer we can find right here in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 76. What does God expect of his leaders before a major movement of the spirit before revival now look at luke chapter 1 and let's read verse 76 
Zechariah says this, and you, my child, he's talking about John here, and you, my child, will be called prophet of the Most High. Look at this. This is his life's purpose. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. Circle, highlight, and underline. You will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. Now, one of my favorite moments in seminary happened when we were studying the book of Mark and this very similar passage of scripture. Mark's word that he used for prepare the way is such a beautiful, perfect word. Prepare the way did not mean to sweep and to clean up the path so that it could be easier to walk. Catch this. Only Jesus can do the cleanup work. Only Jesus can sweep up the path. Mark lays out that the word used here, prepare the way, for any of you men and women who serve in the Coast Guard or who serve in the Navy, it basically was the the naval term, the nautical term of come about. The idea is John was the one who was sent to cry out, come about, all eyes forward, prepare the way for the Lord. We are all fully focused without distraction on the direction that we are heading. If you're taking notes, write this down. What does God expect of his leaders before a major movement of the spirit? Number one, they actively eliminate gospel distractions. They actively eliminate gospel distractions. If you are someone who wants revival, the first place to look is in the mirror because we have to make sure beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are striving to live with integrity and to be men and women of high character so that we don't distort and distract the gospel message. You ever been at a movie theater or at your house and someone's head pops up right in front of the screen? You ever had that happen before? I mean, I don't know about you guys. We got a four-year-old named Zeke, and because Zeke is so much smaller than the rest of the family, he's the one who, did y'all see 101 Dalmatians? Did y'all see that movie? Remember in that one where the little little puppy dog, Lucky, just keeps you know poking his head up, and they're like, get down, Lucky, get down. Well, I'm telling you, with Zeke, that's what it's like in our house. He wants to see, so he gets up in front of everybody, and even though we can still see two-thirds of the screen, we're always yelling at Zeke, Zeke, lay down, Zeke, get down. We can't see why, because you want to see clearly the entire image. And that's the picture with the gospel. The role of every believer is to find a way to prepare the way for the Lord, to turn about, to come about, so that there is no hindrance to the gospel message. It can be seen in its fullness. When we don't, it ends up causing barriers to creep up. If you're taking notes, write this down. Integrity and devotion tear down barriers to the gospel. Integrity and devotion tear down barriers to the gospel. You ever had somebody in your life, and I mean, there's been a true movement of God that's taken place, someone you deeply respect, but then something they've done or something they're continuing to do, or you see them in an element that's outside of the church setting, causes you to scratch your head and go, really? That doesn't quite match up with what I've heard. Can I tell you that as a pastor, because we do get to stand up and share the gospel with you, it is not uncommon for pastors, even good ones, to have moments like that. I try my best to limit those as much as possible, but all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I'm not talking about judgment. I'm talking about a situation where you go, to the best of my ability, I'm going to block out all distractions so the gospel can be seen without hindrance. Are there some things in your life that you need to push down, that you need to get rid of, or things that you need to start to develop that integrity so the gospel can be seen powerfully through your life? When it's not, we run into the same problem that King Saul did in the Old Testament. It's a crazy little story uh, where King Saul 
uh, is the first king in Israel. And you've got to remember, he's established in a really supernatural, powerful way. He's the very first king in the history of Israel. And David all of a sudden starts to rise up, but you've got to read it this way. Nobody, when David was the little kid who just beat Goliath, nobody was looking at David going, man, I hope he's king one of these days. Nobody was doing that. It had been prophesied over him by Samuel, but nobody's sitting there going to cast King Saul to the side for David at this point. And yet, Saul's watching David rise up in his house, and he just gets filled with such anger, with such frustration, that all of a sudden, one day, David's playing his harp, and it says Saul takes a spear and tries to pin David to the wall. Not long after that, David hears that Saul's going to kill him in his bed, so he hides idols in his bed in the middle of the night and runs off to meet a prophet named Samuel in Ramoth Gilead. In the story, it says that while David's there, Saul sends men to capture him, but when the men show up, they begin to preach and prophesy. A movement of God takes place that's undeniable. The soldiers begin to preach at this revival. When the soldiers don't come back, Saul sends another group. They also stand up and prophesy. He sends a third group. They also stand up and prophesy. And finally, Saul goes, I better go handle this myself. And when Saul shows up, the king who is taken by selfishness and fear, all of a sudden it says that Saul then begins to preach as well. The Spirit of God even falls on him in that powerful moment. But it says he stripped off his clothes and preached naked. So here's what's weird, just to state the obvious. The Spirit of God fell on the angry man, and he preached, and there was no denying that the Spirit had moved. But because he did it with distraction, with distortion, the passage that should end with, and everyone gave God the glory, instead ends with a question, that is why they say, is not Saul also among the prophets? It causes the glory of God to be undeniable. But the onlooker to scratch their head and go, was he a prophet too? I mean, he spoke powerfully. We know that the spirit moved, but he did so in such a way that it just makes you wonder if this was in spite of him or through him. Now listen, revival is hindered when people claiming to be godly leaders do not allow the Lord to work on their integrity and their character. A movement of God in society starts with you. You living biblically in accordance with his word. The psalmist writes it here. It might be David, probably not. But in Psalm chapter 1, flip over. I want to read you Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. Here's what the psalmist has to say on this subject. Save your spot in Luke, but flip over to Psalm 1, starting in verse 1. The psalmist outlines this principle powerfully. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in what? The law of the Lord. And his law, and on his law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither, whatever he does prospers. Stop right there for just a minute. The picture here is the psalmist says, when we walk in step, not just in our relationship with God, but with the teachings of Scripture, with the truth of God's law, it causes us to be in step with the Lord and whatever we do, it prospers. It eliminates the distractions of our lives so the gospel can be seen clearly in those or through uh, can be seen clearly by those around us. It begs the question, do you need to do something to prepare the way for the Lord? Do you need to do something to prepare the way of the Lord? You're already connected to him in spirit through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. 
but for you to be a clear reflection of who Jesus is and the message that we proclaim. Is there something in integrity and character that you need to sharpen? Not so you'll earn salvation. You can't do that on your own. But so the gospel would be seen clearly through your life. Now flip back over to Luke chapter 1, and let's look at verse 77. God expects, again, uh, for a major movement of the Spirit, that we actively eliminate gospel distractions, that we be men and women of great character and high integrity. Look at what happens next in verse 77. He says, John, you've been born to give his people knowledge of salvation. Underline and highlight the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Stop right there for just a minute. What does God expect of his leaders before a major movement of the Spirit? Number one, they actively eliminate gospel distractions. And number two, they know how to lead someone to Christ. They know how to lead someone to Christ. John's life purpose is the same purpose of every believer in Jesus Christ. He saves us, and then we take the message to the world. His goal is not just that preachers and ministers and missionaries would be agents of the gospel, but that you would be agents of the gospel as well. Try to think about it this way. Think about the logistics it takes for the Lord. If you believe that the only place people can get saved are within the walls of this little church space, if that's what you believe then all the logistical work that God has to do in your family, in your job, in your community to get them saved, to get them to a place where they can receive the gospel message, that is a massive amount of logistical work. Could God do it? Absolutely. And we experience him doing it all the time. But could you just share the gospel right then and there and then be saved? Absolutely. You are empowered with that gospel message to lead people to forgiveness and eternity right here, right now, in this very moment, wherever it is that you are placed. If you're taking notes, write this down. Anyone can lead someone to Christ. It's not your pastor's job. It's every believer's calling. Anyone can lead someone to Christ. It's not your pastor's job. It's every believer's calling. Even growing up in a pastor's family, this was hard for me to grasp in the early days. I'll never forget, I was in the ninth grade, and uh, there was a rally that had been put together called the Promise Keepers Rally. Some of you guys will remember Promise Keepers. There were two really big ones that they did. One was at RFK Stadium here, and the other was at Texas Stadium uh, in, uh, in Irving, Texas. This was years ago. Again, I was a ninth grader back then. We got any 14-year-olds in this room? You 14? So Dax, I want you to picture Dax on this, because I was your age when this happened. My dad pulled me out of school and he said, hey, we've been asked to work security at Texas Stadium for the Promise Keepers Rally. I want to say it was like, I want to say it was like 58,000 men that had gathered together for this worship service. It was, it was truly spectacular, unbelievable. And growing up a Dallas Cowboys fan, that it was at the Texas Stadium there in Irving, I just I was so excited to get to do this. Well, sure enough, we were there to work security. There was nothing to secure, all right? It was just one of those situations. And so we were hanging out in Jerry Jones' box, which is, again, dream come true, hanging out in Jerry Jones' box at Texas Stadium watching this amazing movement of God take place. And there was a pastor that got up to preach, one of my favorite preachers still to this day, Dr. Tony Evans. Dr. Tony Evans gets up, shares the gospel, and the spirit falls with such power. All of a sudden, he says, if you want to be saved, please come to the front. Tens of thousands of men come forward to be saved. And at that moment, a man rushes into the box and says, if you are able to lead someone to Christ, we need you to come with us down to the field. 
Now, all I heard was down to the field, all right? And being a huge Dallas Cowboys fan, I was like, what? Oh my goodness, we can go down on the field, right? And again, my dad being a pastor at that point, an evangelist, I mean, I'm telling you, everybody rushed down there. And what we saw, we walk out on the field and they had the stage here, uh, there in the end zone with the Dallas Cowboys logo right down there in front. And I remember they had seats on the field and there was an aisle in the middle. And then of course the concourse, tens of thousands of men there praising God. And I remember I walked down. One of my dad's friends is on this side praying with 20 men to receive Christ. My dad's on this side. He's got 40 men gathered around him that he's praying with to receive Christ. And I'm there, ninth grade. I'm 14. I'm your age, Dax. And I'm standing there on the goal line and just looking around. And I remember thinking, man, God is big. Look at what he's done. This was just such an amazing, holy moment. And then all of a sudden, a man rounds the corner at the center aisle in his 70s. He'd been in the upper concourse. He moved a little bit slower. He's made his way to the aisle, and I'm last man standing. I start looking around, and all the other groups are set, and they're praying, and he's looking straight at me as he comes down the aisle. He comes up and says, son, I need to be saved. At that moment, praise God, I didn't know. I hadn't had a class. I hadn't gone through training, but I remembered what the Lord had done for me, And I prayed there with that man to receive Christ in that moment. It was truly an earth-shaking moment for me. And for that man, it was a three-point shot at the buzzer that he handed to Jesus so that he could spend eternity in heaven. It was truly, truly special. Now listen to me. If I asked you today, do you know how to lead someone to Christ? Or if I ask you, if someone asked you, would you lead me to Christ? Would you know what to say to them? If the answer is, I don't know, then I've done a pretty poor job as your pastor. And you know what I learned in the first service? I could stand to do a little bit better. And so here's what I'd like to offer you. In January, we're going to do a workshop on how to lead someone to Christ. It'll be a Sunday night. We'll cater food. But I'd love to be able to walk you through specifically how to lead someone to Christ. We still want you to invite your friends to church. But remember... In the early church, if the disciples had just said, man, we got to bring them to church. You live in India? Man, that's great. We got about a five months journey and then I'll share the gospel with you, right? That's not the way it works. You know what they did instead? They took the gospel to the people. The Lord deployed them and they watched movements of God take place. So if you're interested in being a part of that workshop, just be one night. It's way easier to teach this than you think. One night in January, if you're interested... On your little cards today, write your name and email address and write workshop on it. And when we finish up, drop it in the boxes and we will make sure you get an invite to that workshop when it happens on a Sunday night in January. You can know the answers to these questions. And I'm telling you, the Lord sets you free and deploys you. And that's how you watch a movement of God take place in the workplace. That's how you watch a movement of God take place in your family when you go to visit them for Christmas break. That's how you watch a movement of God take place in your neighborhood. It's not because you brought them to church, even though we love it when you bring them to church. It's because you had the guts to ask them if they wanted to be saved. Great example of this comes from Acts chapter 9. Save your spot there in Luke chapter 1. And now flip over to Acts chapter 9, and we're going to read verses 10 through 19. This is the story of Ananias and the call that Ananias had to witness and share the gospel 
to ask who would become the apostle Paul if he wanted to be saved. I mean, other than Jesus himself, I don't know that there's anybody more famous in Christendom than the apostle Paul. He would end up writing a huge portion of the New Testament. He would end up planting churches that actually have roots all the way to us here in DC to this day because he was the apostle to the Gentiles. How in the world does Paul come to Christ? Look at what happens. It takes someone of courage leading him in verse 10. Excuse me, chapter 9, starting in verse 10. It says, now in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. And the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. Circle, underline, and highlight, yes, Lord, he answered. One of the things I love about Ananias here is Ananias' response to God is yes before a question is even asked. If you want to take notes on something that's not in your notes, the disciple's attitude is yes, Lord, now what's the question? Why is Ananias the one that God called upon to share the gospel with the apostle Paul? I truly believe it's because of those two simple words right there. His attitude was yes before the question was even asked of him. Yes, Lord, he answered. And the Lord said to him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. This is the man Saul who would become Paul. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Verse 13, Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your servants in Jerusalem. And he's come here with the authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call upon your name. Now stop right there for just a minute. I want you to notice Ananias in no way makes his obedience to God contingent upon whether or not this is the Saul who's been breathing out murderous threats against the disciples or not. He goes, I just want to get straight that this is who it is that you want me to go talk to. I just want to make sure we're on the same page. This is that Saul that we've been praying against, that we've been uh, praying for all this time. I just want to make sure that this is the guy. And I want you to notice this. In no way does he say, Lord, I'm not witnessing to him. In no way does he say, I'll only do this if you'll do this, this, and this for me. No, Ananias, a true disciple, says, Lord, I'll do it. I already told you yes before you asked the question. I am an obedient, faithful follower of you. I just want to know what I'm getting into. And then look at what the way the Lord responds. Verse 15, it says, but the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Verse 17, then Ananias went to the house and entered it and placing his hands on Saul, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road when you were coming here, he has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained strength. Do you know the next time in Scripture that Ananias is mentioned? He's not. This is it. This incredible, eternal warrior is mentioned one time in Scripture, this one glorious shining moment when he was the one who the Lord called upon to go to the house on Straight Street and share the gospel with the man that God would end up using to take the gospel to the world. Do you realize you are a deployable agent of Almighty God? And if you know how to lead someone to Christ, he can take you anywhere to bring about his will in the most powerful ways possible. This is our point of pep rally. You are deployed to do his work in his service all across the planet. 
It begs the question, if someone asks you to lead them to Christ, would you know what to say? If someone asks you to lead them to Christ, would you know what to say? If the answer is no, turn in that card for the workshop. All right? Now flip back over to Luke chapter 1. And let's look at verse uh, 78 and 79 as we finish out this chapter. Here's what it says. Why else has John come? He's come to be the prophet, to prepare the way from the Lord, for the Lord. He's uh, come to be the one to bring the knowledge of salvation and forgiveness. And now verse 78, it says, because of, their tender mercy of our, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven. Look at this. To shine on those living in darkness. Underline to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet to the path of peace. Underline and highlight to guide our feet to the path of peace. You ever stood in the weeds before or stood in tall grass? Now, because I come from Texas, you don't stand in the tall grass long because there's snakes in that grass, all right? Okay, does that make sense? Some of you from Texas know. You don't stand in the tall grass long because you don't know what's in there. It's also why the scariest thing, the scariest job that you can have uh, when you are on one of the farms, uh, when you're on a farm or a ranch, is when they ask you to go clean out the big oil drum barrels because that have been sitting there for 20 years. Because if they've been sitting there, there are spiders and just junk all over. I mean, you make sure you've got gloves on and long sleeve shirt in the middle of summer, 110 degrees degrees in the summer, because black widow spiders live in those 10 gallon drums, those 50 gallon barrels. And you want to make sure that you don't get bit by one of those. And so again, it's what's in the darkness. It's what's unseen and what's been growing and living and breathing out of sight that causes you such angst and fear that you make sure that you are ready before you step into it. That's the picture here of John the Baptist, that not only was he sent to eliminate the gospel distractions, not only was he sent to be a voice to call out for forgiveness, but he also was meant to be a light in the darkness to lead people out of the weeds onto that path of peace that they could clearly hear the Lord again. But here's the problem, and it's the reason that revival struggles to break out. Because if you really think about it, it's not hard for someone who's a leader to want to live with integrity, to want to have high character so that you could have influence and people would listen to you. In fact, it's not even so far-fetched to go, you know, I'd take a one-time, one-hour class in learning how to lead someone to Christ. Those first two are not the reason that we struggle to see revival. The third reason is the reason we struggle to see revival. Are you ready for this? Number three, they graciously bring the light of truth to the darkness. They graciously bring the light of truth to the darkness. And it's not because you're afraid of the darkness. It's because you're afraid that if you pick up that light to shine it on the darkness for others, to shine their way back to the path, you're afraid because to hold that light also reveals who you are. It reveals the stuff that you like to hide. It reveals the parts of you that you prefer to be in the shadows. Now listen to me. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in many cases in a church like ours, especially in a city like ours, where bad reputation can ruin you, we know that the light is the way revival comes about. And we desire the light for others. But we stay six feet social distanced away from it because we're afraid of what it might show in us. If you're taking notes, write this down. Eternal foundations cannot be built on lies or wickedness. Eternal foundations cannot be built 
on on lies or wickedness. This is your buddy the elf quote of the day. You sit on a throne of lies, all right? The Lord refuses. That's right. The Lord refuses to sit on a throne of lies. He refuses to build a foundation for something timeless, something that changes the world on a foundation of wickedness and lies. Now listen to me. I'm going to tell you a story today that I've never told publicly. It's one of those things where I've shared it in different counseling sessions, but it's, it's one of my stories to tell. And it kind of completes the circle on a lot of other stories that you may have heard from me. This is truly my testimony. But something happened to me that caused a spiral of events over the years. And um, I'm going to hide behind the podium as I tell you. All right. Okay. Um, when I was in college, um, I took a class called Juvenile Delinquency. I got my degree in sociology. And so this was one of the prerequisite courses. And uh, in the class, they had us take an inventory um, and it was a juvenile delinquency inventory that included certain things, questions about certain things that uh, could happen to an individual to spur a life of delinquency. And several of them had to do with abuse. And I remember I'm going through that inventory for the class and there was a question about abuse and all of a sudden, this tidal wave of memories came back to me from something that had happened when I was 15 years old. And I, I'm being dead serious. I had not remembered any of those things. And all of a sudden, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. And I remember there was another individual that was there, another minor that was there at the time. And I called him and I said, I just had this nightmare of a memory. I said, did this happen? He burst into tears and he said, I haven't thought about that night in a long time either. And then all of a sudden we realized it wasn't a bad dream. It was, it was, it was something awful. And um, I remember, um, I remember as all that began to unfold, it was also a time where in my walk with God, I would grow, but it was like there was a cap and I just couldn't break through. I would try to get close to him, but I just couldn't break through. But all of a sudden, I was right next to that light of truth. And everything in me wanted to run away. But I knew I couldn't move forward until I embraced what had happened. And so I called my parents. They struggled to understand. In the beginning, if any of you have ever had to talk about abuse to a family member, they do struggle to understand because they feel like it's their fault that they didn't protect you from that. And I remember I was just so, was just so broken but the Lord began to restore. And so here's what happened. I stayed close to the light. And then all of a sudden it revealed. Some of you know I was engaged to someone that we dated for three and a half years. As I was close to the light, the path of peace revealed that I was with somebody. That I was dragging her down. And she was keeping me from being who God wanted me to be as well. Staying close to the light revealed that we needed to part ways. Not only that. Um, but the individual who had been involved in the abuse, which by the way was not illegal, it was just highly improper. And you kind of learn the difference between things that are prosecutable and are not. Um, it was still very much abuse, but that individual used to spew hate on my father and say horrible things about my dad. And so all of a sudden, part of the testimony of my dad and I coming back together um, had to do specifically with me realizing what had happened, holding on to the truth 
and realizing that there were lies that were continuing to be told to me to tear my family apart. It was right after that that the Lord provided a job for me in ministry. It was right after that that I met Autumn and we will celebrate 17 years of, fam- of a marriage next month. It was right after that that we would commit to come and plant Waterfront Church. But the enemy stifles revival because in order for me to move forward in truth, I had to cling to it with all my might and say, this happened, but it will not define me. Rather than to slink into the shadows and go, I better not step too close to the truth because then it will expose this part of me that I am so deeply ashamed of that it happened. I don't know why of all days the Lord called for that today. I drove down to Woodbridge this morning. Sometimes I drive and think. And so I drove down to Woodbridge to fill up with gas on the way. And this was crazy. I stop at this little Exxon station by Potomac Mills. And I'm filling up with gas. And a man steps out of his car. And I swear it looked exactly like my dad who died seven years ago. It was just, I hadn't had that moment before since he died. And this guy comes out, skull it and everything. Dad was bald on top with a mullet in the back. It was crazy. <laughs> That to me was a reaffirmation to go ahead and share that story. I don't know why the Lord called for that today, but for some of you, it's time that you stop fearing the past. Allow Christ to take it and to heal you so that then you can move forward in truth. Paul writes it this way. Save your spot there in Luke and flip over to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Last chapter Paul would ever write, 2 Timothy chapter 4. And let's read verses 2 through 5. You'll see elements of the first part of John the Baptist's story here. But Paul says, verse, chapter 4, verse 2, Timothy, preach the word, right? Preach the word. Eliminate those distractions. Be prepared in season and out of season to correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Look at this. For a time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Look at verse 4. They will turn their ears away from the truth truth and they'll turn aside to myths but you keep your head in all situations endure hardship do the work of an evangelist discharge all the duties of your ministry stop right there for just a minute paul says a time will come when men turn away from the truth even though we know that's where our power comes from you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free that's from the mouth of jesus christ himself so why if we know truth is the catalyst for revival why do we turn away from it it's not because we're all wicked and evil and want to lord power over others that's some but that's certainly not who would be sitting in the room today why do we stay away from the truth because we're afraid of what it reveals in us where we've been what we've done and the lie straight from the pits of hell is that christ didn't die for that he died for the little stuff but not for the big stuff that we're truly ashamed of he died for all sin past present and future for those who believe you can be set free is that your testimony today Or do you stay six feet from the light? Just close enough to see the work of God in others, but just far enough away to not allow him to change you. I want to encourage you. You want to see revival? You want to see societal change? We're going to have to step into the light and then take it to others because for them it's painful. Now that doesn't mean you need to go out and post every gory detail of your story out on the web. If you notice, I've been very calculated with the pieces of my story I've shared with you today. You don't have to share everything. But man, stay close to the truth. Otherwise it convolutes everything. It begs the final question today. Are you ready? Are you in a position 
to shine the light of the truth? Are you in a position to shine the light of the truth? Or do you stay six feet away and count on the professionals to do it? And then we get to Luke chapter 1, verse 80. Just for good measure, let's finish out the passage. You ready? Luke chapter 1, verse 80. It closes out, and the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. The other part that I love about John's story is this is prophesied for his life and set as a goal for all believers. But he didn't just achieve it immediately. It was 30 years from the moment this was prophesied. Maybe 29 years minus 8 days, all right? Before he stands up to preach for the first time. He had to be 30 to preach in this culture. He stays. The Lord guides him and prepares him. And at this moment, 30 years later, that's where he stands up as who he was meant to be. My story today, I was 15 when those moments happened. And I'm 40 years old now. A little bit shorter than 30, all right? 25. But for some of you here today, maybe it's time that you start on that path where you cling to the light and allow revival to begin with you so it can be taken to the world. Thanks for listening. Let's bow our heads for prayer.